I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to two openings of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1 and Romans chapter 5. We've been teaching for the last uh, several weeks on uh, uh, authority, literally spiritual dominion. And we want to go a little bit further with it this morning. And uh, we want to start with a scripture that we've been looking at each week, kind of a text scripture that we've been using. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, at the creation, God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Image and likeness must be two different things. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Now, we've, uh, we've referred to this before. But maybe it'd be worth uh, saying it again, mentioning it again. In Psalm 8, the Bible tells us that the angels, at this point in time, when God was uh, identified his plan to create man and to give man dominion, the angels said, Who is man or what is man that thou art mindful of him? That thou createst him a little lower than yourself. King James says a little lower than the angels, but that word angels is the word Elohim, which is used for God. It's the same word that's translated God here in Genesis 126. You have made him a little lower than yourself. God made man as close to himself as he could. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. But God made man as close to himself as he could. Not in the class of angels, but above the class of angels. The Bible says that at the end, after uh, uh, God sets up his kingdom here on the earth in the millennium, and takes care of the devil once and for all and so forth. The Bible says that man will judge the angels. Well, man can't be lower than the angels if he's going to be in position to judge them. So the angel says, what is man that thou art mindful of him, that thou hast made him a little lower than yourself, literally a little lower than Elohim, the three in one. You have crowned him with glory and honor and, and loving kindness. You've put all the works of your hands under his authority or under his dominion. Folks, I want you to understand that God's plan from the beginning was for man to rule the earth. Now, that doesn't mean rule over each other. Don't, don't think naturally about this. Dominion, God's plan of dominion perverted is man ruling over one group of people ruling over another. God's plan was to rule over the earth, his creation, in peace. But man messed that up. When Adam fell, the Bible says, sin entered the world and death by sin. Romans 5.12 tells us, Adam's one offense changed everything. His fallen state then turned, in, turned his dominion over to Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4 now says that Satan is the God of this world. Now, it does not mean the God of creation. It doesn't mean that Satan is the God of, the, of creation. And it doesn't even mean that Satan controls everything here on the earth. For even the Old Testament said... Men living under the old covenant. David said the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The Holy Spirit inspired him to say that the earth still belongs to God and everything in it is his. Well, then what is Satan the God of then? He's the God of the age. He's the God of the age of man. But even under the old covenant, we see time and time again where God instructed someone, where someone operating under just Old Testament principles of, of obedience, where they did miraculous things to supersede even in some cases, the laws of nature, to overcome Satan's work against the people of God. Time and time and time again, God used man when man stepped into a place where God could credit to him righteousness. That wasn't available to them in reality until Jesus came to the cross and died, or came to the earth and died on the cross. But even under the old covenant, where they had just a promise of righteousness, whenever man would operate in obedience to God's word, then he was 
delivered an element or a measure of dominion that overcame the works of the devil in many cases, uh, well, in every case over their own lives, but in many cases over the lives of others that, uh, that loved God as well. But that's what Jesus came to bring back to us. Jesus came back to restore or came to the earth to restore lost dominion. And he did that by making man righteous. Now, did you find Romans chapter uh, 5 yet? Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 17. This is a verse of scripture that we looked at uh, before in, in some detail. But in connection with this, in connection with the work of Jesus on the cross and what the purpose for going to the cross was. See, so many times the church just talks about sin. Jesus came to forgive sin. Well, Jesus did forgive sin, but that's really not why he came. The Bible says that Jesus, for this purpose, was the Son of God manifested. 1 John 3, verse 8. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested, then he might destroy the works of the devil. Well, that's a whole lot more than just forgiveness of sin. See, under the old covenant, they had forgiveness of sins. It was a temporary thing. It was a year-to-year thing. But they obtained temporary forgiveness of sins, one year at a time, forgiveness of sins through the, the day of atonement, the sacrifice of the bulls and the goats, the sacrificial lamb. So if forgiveness of sin was all God was interested in, then why did Jesus have to come? Yeah, okay, it might be inconvenient to make a sacrifice year after year after year, but you can still do it. You can still accomplish it that way. There had to be more to it than the forgiveness of sins for Jesus to come to the earth. Well, what did he come to do? Well, again, 1 John 3, 8, Jesus was manifested for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Now, what works of the devil does he mean? Is he just talking about the works of the devil in your life? Is he just talking about God came so that, that the work of the devil would be destroyed so that, 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 uh, so that you wouldn't cheat anymore and you wouldn't lie anymore and you wouldn't tell dirt, dirty jokes anymore? No, the Bible says man's problem was that he was dead. The work of the devil, what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and, and rebelled against God was that man fell into spiritual death. He was held in bondage from that moment forward in spiritual death. It's spiritual death that Jesus came to destroy. Because sins, meaning behavior, wrong behavior, wrongdoing on man's part, is not the result of anything other than the fact that spiritual death began to rule on the earth. Adam's one sin, one transgression, one mistake opened the door to spiritual death. Remember, that's what God said. God told him in the Garden of Eden. He said, you can eat of every fruit of the tree, eat of everything that's out here except this. You, will, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, he can't be talking about physical death because Adam didn't die physically the day that he ate of it. Well, what death is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual death. See, that one sin opened the door to spiritual death. And that one sin, which opened the door to spiritual death, caused the results or the consequences of spiritual death, like poverty, like sickness, like depression, like self-consciousness. One of the greatest things about the Garden of Eden to me is that they, Adam and Eve walked around before they, before they fell, before they sinned. They walked in the Garden of Eden and they were naked and they didn't know it. How could you not know you're naked? The first thing they saw, however, when they fell was they became aware of themselves. They became aware of themselves. There must be an element of righteousness that makes you more conscious of other things than you. Well, if we ever tap into that, we'll gain a victory. 
So Jesus came to restore mankind. How did he do that? Well, notice in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, it says, For if, literally the word if is the word since, for since by one man, Adam's offense in the Garden of Eden, death, spiritual death, reigned by the one. Spiritually, you didn't get sin in the Garden of Eden, did you? But spiritual death holds you in bondage just as, or held you in bondage just as much as it did Adam. Why? Because his one sin, his one offense opened the door to spiritual death and that passed upon all men. But much more, here's the contrast, much more they which receive the abundance of grace, that's the finished work of Jesus, and of the gift of righteousness. Notice the condition or the, the, the um, connection of righteousness with authority. Much more they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign as kings by one Jesus Christ. Shall reign by one. King, uh, the um, Amplified said shall reign in life as kings by one Jesus Christ. What's Jesus doing? He's coming back to the earth to restore man's righteousness and his dominion. His righteousness and his dominion. Now turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. This is uh, what Paul called the gospel. This knowledge I'm talking about, about man's dominion restored. Being made righteous because he's been made righteous. Is the gospel that Paul said the whole world would be judged by. In other words, there was no Old Testament teaching that spelled it out for us. Here's how it was going to be. Now, the Bible did say that, that righteousness would be given back to man, but it didn't identify exactly how. There were uh, intimations. There was information about uh, the Messiah coming and being a sacrifice for man. But nobody understood that. I mean, the disciples themselves, when Jesus spelled it out for them and said, here's what's going to happen, the disciples had no clue. And as a result, when it did happen, they were, they were afraid. They were hiding behind closed doors because they were afraid that the Jews were going to come get them and kill them for being followers of Jesus now that Jesus was off the scene. And Jesus upbraided them. After his resurrection, Jesus upbraided them. That means he chewed them out. What for? For their unbelief. Why didn't they believe him? Why didn't they believe him? Because they didn't have any basis. They didn't have any teaching other than what Jesus said. Here's what's going to happen. They thought, well, that's, that's no way. I mean, people don't, aren't raised from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. We saw that. But, you know, Jesus going to the cross and being raised from the dead, that's just too much for them to accept. And Jesus chewed them out for not believing him. So this was not something that anybody and everybody would understand. It's not something that people were looking for. If the, if the Jews, even the religious leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if they had known clearly from the Old Testament that resurrection of the Messiah was a part of the deal, once they identified that Jesus was the Son of God, the last thing they would have done, if they didn't want people to follow him, the last thing they would have done was take him to the cross. Their eyes were blinded to the truth. Nobody could understand that. And so, therefore, Paul received this information. Paul received this gospel after he had fought against it, after he had fought against Christians and imprisoned them and killed some. Then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, as it describes to us. And somewhere along the way, we don't know exactly where, but somewhere along the way, God spoke to him, Jesus spoke to him. He said he received it of the Lord himself, which means Jesus had to either tell him or he had a vision about this stuff happening. And in this teaching experience whether vision or words or whatever it was that came to him he received the information the knowledge of who we are in christ he talks about how it made a difference in his life he talked about the change that occurred in him and how he gained victory 
in his own life from the old nature, the old experience with sin that his body had, uh, had encountered and hung on. Wouldn't it be nice if when you get saved, you never wanted to sin again? Wouldn't it be nice if you never fell into sin again once you, get, once you got saved? Now, granted, if you walk in fellowship with God, you won't want to sin, but you'll still stumble and fall sometimes. But wouldn't it be nice if that never happened? Well, if that never happened, then we wouldn't have to have teaching on how to overcome, would we? That's what Paul's revelation is about. It's about who we are in Christ and what belongs to us and so, so that we can overcome ourselves. Now, did you find Ephesians 1? I told you to turn there, didn't I? Okay, Ephesians chapter 1. Let me start reading what Paul said he prayed for the church. I'll start in verse 15. He said, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, that means they're saved, and love unto all the saints, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now when he says, I cease not to give thanks for you, that means he's praying for them all the time. Well, what are you praying for them all the time about, Paul? Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the the knowledge of him. Notice he does not pray that God would give them power or strength. Now, please recognize that this is a supernatural prayer on, on two fronts. Not only is this inspired by the Holy Ghost to pray... Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pray these things, but the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write down what he prayed, and then the Holy Spirit supernaturally saved the prayer so that we would know. Recognize the supernatural aspect, the God-originated aspect of this prayer. In other words, here's what Paul, here's what Paul, uh, let me say it this way, here's what God wants you to pray. If he wanted Paul to pray it for other people, he wants you to pray it for other people. If he wants Paul to pray this for Christians, then this would work for you praying for yourself. Because you're a Christian. So notice what God wants you and I to pray. Notice what God's results that he desires for us are. That God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding. One translation says the eyes of your spirit. I think that's a good translation in this case. The eyes of your spirit or your spiritual understanding being enlightened or opened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. And what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us where to believe. According to the working of his mighty power. Please notice he's not praying for strength. He's not praying for for power. Now, if the Holy Ghost is going to try to get Paul to pray something for somebody, that uh, that implies that God wants this for them. This is the result God wants for the other people, right? Now, why wouldn't God say, Paul, pray for them that I'd give them strength? Why doesn't God say, Paul, pray for the church, pray for these Christians, pray for these people that you've gotten saved in these cities you've been to, pray for these Christians that are left behind, that they would have strength so that they could overcome the devil. That would seem like a good prayer, wouldn't it? The problem is very simply this. Paul knew, and God knew that Paul knew, that they didn't need more strength. They needed to know what strength they had. Everything about Paul's prayer is that you would know, that you would come to understand, that you would realize who you are in Christ. Not that you'd get something more than you have, but that your eyes would be open to what you do have. 
Folks, please understand, God is directing Paul over and over and over again with every church that he prays for to pray that they would have knowledge of what God has already done for them through the work and the sacrifice of Jesus, not that they'd have something they don't have. Why? Because Paul understood and Paul wrote to the church that because we're saved, we're complete in him. One translation said, filled up to the full. Well, Pastor Mike, if I'm filled up to the full, why have I got so much trouble with the devil? Because you don't know who you are. The answer to the devil problems you may have in your life is not to get more power over the devil. It's to come to the knowledge of the power you do have over the devil. Well, thanks for coming. Don't thank me. I didn't do anything. Dear Lord. Okay, so what's he praying? He's praying three things that we would know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of our inheritance in the saints? What belongs to us, in other words? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us as believers? Know God's plan, know what belongs to us, and know the power that's already residing within us. Now, what kind of power is this? Verse 20. Which, being the power which he wrought in Christ... When he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, he's saying the same power dwells in you that raised Jesus from the dead. Now, was that enough power to get the job done? Then the question has to be asked, do we have enough power to get the job done, whatever the situation is in our lives? Yes. Well, then why does the church go looking for other power? Why does the church go looking for something outside of ourselves to get the answer and the, the, the solution to whatever situation we're in? Why is nearly every prayer request that comes into churches worldwide all about God help? God do something about my situation. God heal me from this sickness. God uh, deliver me from this financial bondage. God Give me a better job. God do this. God do that. God do the other. Why is all this stuff about God doing something rather than tapping into what belongs to us because you've already got the fullness of the power that raised Jesus from the dead? Do you realize how much prayer effort is wasted in the body of Christ? Why would we ask God to do something that he's already done in us? What good would it do for us to ask God to do something when he's already given the power to us to do it? It would do no good at all. It's wasted prayer. It's wasted effort. Can you see why the church is so weak? They're not weak because there's no power available. They're weak because they don't take advantage of the power that they have. All right, so he wrought this power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand. Please notice verse 20, set him at his own right hand. That means the work was finished. Jesus sat down. Where did he sit down? Verse 21, far above. Everybody say far above. That doesn't mean barely higher than. Far above. He's talking position now. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come would that not include the devil's power 
So Jesus, the same power that's in you, was wrought in Jesus when, he, when God raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand. And that power is far greater than anything the devil could possibly do, has ever done or ever could do. Right? And has put all things, verse 22, and has put all things, everybody say all things. That means whatever thing you're dealing with in your life is included. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. This is not an incorrect translation, but the way that the wording is causes people to fail to realize, in my opinion, causes most people to fail to realize what he's saying. Let me change this around for you and see if it doesn't make better sense and see if and you judge it for yourself, see if I'm changing anything. And has put all things under his church, over which he is the head, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. See, when it says put all things under his feet, most people think Jesus' feet are the ones that everything is underneath. And that's not what he's saying. The feet are not in the head. Wouldn't that look stupid? Now the feet are in the body. And he says the body is the church. And so what he's saying is Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named. Not only in this world but in that which is to come. And God has put all things under his church. The body. Because the body filleth all in all. In other words the body has the same power that Jesus had. And has. Now you know as well as I do. That Paul didn't write this letter in chapter and verse. So let's keep reading in chapter 2. He's not finished talking. And you hath he quickened. Now why is he talking about you hath he quickened. Because just as he made Jesus alive. When he set him in his own right hand. He made you alive at the same time. That doesn't mean that was the moment that you accepted Jesus. That means that was the moment that the price for spiritual death was paid. You were made alive when Jesus was made alive. You received it when you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But you were made alive. All of mankind was made alive. Quickened in spirit. At the moment that God raised Jesus from the dead. Because Jesus didn't rise for himself. He rose for mankind. He didn't pay the price for himself. He paid the price for mankind. Now it won't do any good. It's one of the most amazing things when you consider and realize. That everybody in the world has been saved. That won't do them any good unless they accept it. But the price is paid for everybody. The Bible said Jesus died for the sins of the world. So everybody, the worst person you can imagine, the most horrible person that you can consider throughout the history of the world or history of mankind, the price for salvation was paid for him or her. But it only does you some good when you receive it and accept it for yourself. Which means the things that God wants for a man don't automatically fall on you. You have to take hold of them. Are you out there? And you as the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. He's talking about spiritual death. You were made alive even while you were in spiritual death. Held in bondage to spiritual death. Wherein in times past before you were saved. In times past you walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. That tells you who's in charge of the world. Satan is. He's the god of this world. Or god of this age literally. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Those who are still unsaved. Not you anymore. But those who are unsaved. 
among whom we all had our conversation in times past. In other words, we all started at the same place. All of us were born out of spiritual death into eternal life by making Jesus the Lord of our lives. Among whom we also had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by nature, that means spiritual death, the nature of spiritual death, the children of wrath even as others. See, that's the change that occurs. The Bible says the first thing that happens when you're born again is God sheds his love abroad in your heart. You stop being a hater, you start being a lover. But God, here's the contrast. You were dead. No hope for you, but God. Who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead, spiritually dead, in trespasses and sins, or dead in sins, hath quickened, made us alive, Together with him in Christ, by grace are you saved, verse 6. And not only did he make you, did he raise you, or I'm sorry, not only did he quicken you at the same moment he quickened Jesus, but has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, if you compare verse 20 of chapter 1 with verse 6 of chapter 2, you'll see that God raised Jesus from the dead by the power that already works in you as a believer, the power that's resident in your spirit as a believer. That's the power that God used and exercised to raise Jesus from the dead. And he raised him to sit with him in heavenly places at his right hand, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. At the same moment that he made Jesus alive in spirit, he made man alive in spirit and raised you to sit together far above all principality and power and might and dominion right with Jesus. Now, obviously, he's talking about position. I don't know about you, but I'm not sitting in heaven. I'm standing in church. So he's talking position. Right? Jesus is literally sitting in heaven. At the right hand of God the Father. But even though I'm here on the earth because I'm his body, he's the head and I'm part of the body just like you are, that means we have the same position as he does. We're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And what's underneath us? All things. We're seated far above. Everybody say far above. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named. Not only in this world but in that which is to come. That's your position now. No wonder Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to pray that our eyes would be opened. If that's who we are. It's certainly not who the church lives up to. Why don't we live up to it? Because we don't know. That's why the Holy Ghost inspired Paul to pray. That's why God gave Paul the information that, that he wrote in the letters to us so that we would come to the knowledge, at least have the opportunity, the potential, to come to the knowledge of who we are in Christ Jesus. Are you out there? I'm going to tell you one of Brother Hagin's stories. In uh, December, second week of December, 1952, he was holding a, a meeting in uh, Oklahoma. He wasn't living there at the time, but he was holding a meeting in a church in Oklahoma. <clears throat> and after the night service, uh, he and the, par- the pastor were in the parsonage next door to the church. And they were having a little bite to eat before, uh, before bed. Brother Hagin said it was about 11 o'clock at night. And, uh, and he and the, the pastor, the spirit of prayer came upon them. And so they just started to pray. They, they left their sandwiches sitting on the table and they bat- knelt down to, to pray. And, and, um, uh, and so they were, they were praying. And, and Brother Hagin said that the Lord appeared to him. 
Now, the, the vision that he had of the Lord was about an hour and a half long, he said. And, uh, and it started off, and the Lord said, I'm going to teach you about the devil, demons, and demon possession. And he told him about some things that would start to work in his life from that point forward when he was in the spirit and so forth. But it, it, toward the tail end of this, he, he gave him some information, gave him some instructions. Much of the information is, uh, is in some of his books. It's, it's not like it's private information or anything. It's just not relevant to the things we want to talk about this morning. But toward the end of the, uh, the, the vision, toward the end of the conversation that the Lord was having with him, Brother Hagin said he was kneeling down on the floor, and he said it was like uh, he, when uh, the ceiling disappeared, and he saw Jesus standing right about where the ceiling was. So he's about, you know, if it's an eight-foot ceiling, he's several feet of, above his head then, you know. And so Brother Hagin is looking at, at the Lord, and during the time that he's looking at the Lord, the Lord is speaking to him about some things. Brother Hagin said, all of a sudden, an evil spirit came and got in between him and Jesus. And he said, this thing looked like a little monkey-type little thing, little imp-looking thing. And he said, he started waving his arms and jumping up and down, waving his arms and his leg, screaming, and yakety yak yak yakety yak yak And he said, when he started screaming, he said, there was this dark cloud that, that began to, to form. The more he screamed, the more he jumped around, the more this cloud formed. Brother Hagin said he could, not lo- he could no longer see Jesus. He said, I could hear him talking. He said, but because of the noise that the evil spirit was making, I couldn't distinguish the words that he was saying. And Brother Hagin explained this, and he said, I almost panicked. He said, there was a thousand thoughts that seemed to go through my head at once. The, the main one being, why is the Lord letting this happen? doesn't jesus know that i can't see him doesn't he know i can't distinguish the words that he's saying this is important i need to hear what he's saying why doesn't jesus do something about this now folks let me ask you a question how similar to that is most of what the church complains about the things going on in their life why did god let this happen doesn't god know i'm in the situation i'm in why doesn't god do something about this brother hagan said that this only lasted for for a matter of seconds but he said it seemed to him like it was forever and he said out of desperation he said in panic I just spoke up and said, I command you to stop in the name of Jesus. He said, I no sooner got that out of my mouth than this little thing hit the floor with a thud. He said, the smoke disappeared. The noise stopped. And this little thing answered back something like, well, I I don't want to, but I know if you tell me to, I have to or something like that. And Brother Hagin said to him, and not only that, but get out of here in the name of Jesus. And he said that thing shook and trembled when it was on the floor. And then when he told it to leave, it took off like a shot. And then the Lord spoke to him. See, the Lord knows what you're thinking. The Lord knows what you're feeling about things. Jesus knew exactly what Brother Hagin was experiencing while this stuff was going on. And so Jesus said to him this. He said, if you hadn't done something about that, I couldn't. And Brother Hagin started arguing with the Lord a little bit. He said, well, Lord, I, I must not have heard you right. Now, remember, this was 1952. People didn't know a lot of the things that we take for granted in knowing about the word now. This is how they found out some of those things. So he said, Lord, I know I didn't hear you right. You didn't say that if I hadn't done something about that, you wouldn't have or you couldn't have. You said you wouldn't have, didn't you? Jesus said, no, I didn't say that I wouldn't. I said that I couldn't. And Brother Hagin said, Lord, I'm sorry. I, I, I just don't. I'm just not getting it some way or another. My ears aren't working right. You didn't say that you couldn't. You said that you wouldn't, didn't you? And Jesus got testy about it on the third time. And he said, no, I didn't say that I wouldn't. I said that I couldn't. 
And Brother Hagin said, well, that beats anything I've ever heard of. That, that, just, that, that just turns up on end, everything that I've ever heard and taught. And Jesus said this. He said, there is nowhere in the New Testament that the Bible ever tells anyone to pray that I or the Father would ever do anything about the devil. And he went further to say, and now this is Jesus talking. Now, you judge for yourself whether or not you think Brother Hagin had the vision. I, I can assure you, I'll prove to you that it's absolutely scriptural. Not everybody wants to accept people have visions and so forth. And I'm not trying to live by anybody's vision. But if this really happened, and I believe it did. I knew Brother Hagin. I knew his character. I don't believe he'd lie about it. It's totally and completely scriptural. So the context or the teaching involved in it is worth hearing because it's in line with the Bible. But if this really happened, if Jesus really said these things to him, please understand this is Jesus teaching us, the church, not just for Brother Hagin's personal use, but for him to tell other people and teach others as well. Him teaching us about what should and shouldn't be done relative to our prayers and how we deal with the devil. So Jesus went further and he said, for you to pray or for any Christian to pray that I or the Father would do something about the devil is a wasted prayer. It's wasting their time. And Brother Hagin answered. He, he said he was flabbergasted by this. This is brand new information to him. He said he just spoke up and said, well, Lord, I've wasted a lot of time. Because he'd taken on the habits, bad habits of other people. Then he said this. Then the Lord said this. The Lord said, I told my people that they have authority over the devil and they're supposed to do something about him. And to pray to me or pray to the Father otherwise is totally uh, ineffective. And Brother Hagin stopped and he said, now wait a minute, Lord, Lord, I, I, I'm so glad that you appeared to me. I appreciate you telling me these things. But I can't accept a vision just because it's a vision. See, every supernatural thing is not from God. The devil does a lot of supernatural things and some Christians are caught aware they don't know enough about the Bible to know how to judge the fruit of it. So he said, Lord, I can't accept that. And I, I, even though you are appearing to me, even though I do see you, I can't accept that unless you can prove it to me from the, from the New Testament, from the Bible. And he said, and I'm talking about the New Testament. I don't live by the Old Testament. I want something in the New Testament. And he said, you said in your word, then the mouth of two or three witnesses, let your word be established. So I expect three witnesses in the New Testament to prove this to me. And Jesus smiled. Brother Hagin said, Jesus smiled and said, I'll go you one better. I'll give you four. And Brother Hagin said, well, if there's anything like that in the New Testament, I don't know it because I've read the New Testament hundreds of times. He said, Jesus smiled again and said, well, son, there's a lot in there you don't know. That's true for all of us, isn't it? So I'm going to give you the four references that Brother Hagin said Jesus gave him about dealing with the devil. You ready? Matthew chapter 28. First one Jesus said was Matthew chapter 28. Now this one is not in the epistles, it's in the gospels. But you'll see how it, how it applies. This is after Jesus is raised from the dead. Verse 18, it said, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power, this word power, first word power is the word authority. All authority, literally, is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now Jesus said this. This is Jesus teaching Brother Hagin on how this stuff works. I always appreciated this vision, especially the first time I heard it, because it gave me the freedom to understand how to start interpreting and think about the Bible, think about Scripture. It revealed to me Jesus' thinking and his reasoning related to the Word of God, and that's always been a great help to me. 
So Jesus said this. When I was raised from the dead and appeared to the disciples, I told them all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. He said, now, if you stopped reading right there, somebody might say, yeah, well, see, Jesus is the one with authority. If he has all authority, that would include all authority over the devil. So he's the one that has authority. He said, but I immediately conferred that authority unto my disciples. I said, go ye therefore. I, I said, go ye therefore. Notice verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the ends of the earth. Then Brother Hagin said, the Lord told him this. He said, the Lord said, now Mark's gospel concludes the things that I told him, told them. I told them, beginning in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Verse 17, And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. What's the first sign? They shall cast out devils. They shall cast out devils. They shall cast out devils. You can't cast out devils if you don't have authority over them, folks. He said, I immediately, Jesus said to Brother Hagin, I immediately conferred that authority on the earth to my disciples, and I told them that one of the first signs, the first sign that would accompany those that believe in my name is authority over the devil. It goes on to say they will cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover them. They shall recover. The sick shall recover. Brother Hagin said the Lord told him this. He said, I told them to cast out devils. I didn't tell them to pray that I would. He said, I told them that they would speak with new tongues. I didn't say that they should pray that I would speak in new tongues. Wouldn't that be stupid? You ever heard anybody say, oh, Father God, have Jesus speak in tongues so that this situation is fixed? No, we understand that we're the ones that speak in tongues. The supernatural part of it is not the fact that we speak in tongues. The supernatural part is the words that we speak by the utterance of the Holy Ghost. But we're the ones that speak in tongues. And no matter how filled with the Holy Ghost you are, if you don't choose to speak, nothing happens. Why? Because it's under your authority. It's under your purview. You're the one that decides what will take place and what will not take place where the baptism of the Holy Ghost is concerned relative to speaking with other tongues. We don't ask God to do that for us. We do that on our own. Furthermore, Paul said about speaking in tongues, I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. In other words, he says, he's the one that decides. Why? Because he's the one that's filled. He's the one, therefore, that has authority. The next one, they shall take up serpents. The word take up uh, literally means to lift up like an anchor so a ship can sail away. So what he's saying is, it's another aspect, another element of authority over the devil. He's saying you can break the devil's power to set people free. He didn't say that we would pray that God would do it. He said we would lift up the anchor, the bondage of Satan over people so that they can be free. Now here's where a lot of people get wrong in their praying. They pray, oh, Father, do something to set them free. Well, now, if what Jesus told Brother Hagin was accurate and true about that evil spirit that got in between him and the Lord, Brother Hagin and the Lord, if what Jesus said is true, if you hadn't done something about that, I couldn't have, then every prayer that we pray that God would do something to set somebody free rather than us breaking the power of the devil over them is a wasted prayer. 
Because if what Jesus said is true, if we don't use the authority, he can't. See, there's one thing about God. He's not an Indian giver. Thank God he's not. You know what I mean by that term, Indian giver? We use that as kids. I'm not sure exactly where it came. It may not be politically correct, and I'm not trying to offend anybody, please. No reason to write me letters. Uh, you know, I'm just ignorant country boy. You can get by with a lot on that, by the way, let me tell you. Everybody knows that's true. But God doesn't give you stuff and then take it back from you. Aren't you glad he doesn't do that with salvation? Oh, yeah, you're saved. Oh, no. Today you messed up. I'm going to take it back. You're not worthy of it now. No, God doesn't give you something and take it back. If he delivered authority to you, it's yours. Whether you do anything with it or not, whether you use it accurately or not, whether you misuse it or not, it's still yours. That's why he gave you an instruction book so that we'd know how to operate effectively. So if what Jesus said was true, if you hadn't done something about that, I couldn't have. Because that authority has already been delivered unto man. Then if we pray that God does something about something he's given us authority for, we're wasting our time because he can't. It's up to us to do. You ever looked at the times where, uh, where the Bible talks about the disciples, the apostles healed the sick? Now, we always try to put it over on God. We say, well, God used them. God used them, but God really healed the sick. But the fact is, the Bible says they healed the sick. We shy away from that. We are, we are so uh, religiously brainwashed in some areas that we shy away from that. And in so doing, we're denying the very authority that Jesus has given us. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that anybody has in and of themselves the power to heal. Nobody has that power. God has that power. But Jesus delivered that authority to you. He delivered the authority to set people free to you. So for you to try to give it back to him and say, well, Lord, I'm just being humble. So I'm looking for you to do it. Well, then nothing gets done. Therefore, we would have to conclude that God's plan... Jesus' plan for the use of authority was thwarted, detoured, made ineffective. All because people are trying to be humble. Next thing he said, next sign he said, if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. That's talking about divine protection. Now, we wouldn't pray that God would make sure that Jesus didn't let us drink any deadly thing. No, it says the protection is yours. Finally, the last one is, and they shall lay hands on the sick, and the sick shall recover. We don't pray that God would have Jesus lay hands on people, do we? No, that's up to us to do. That's up to us to do. The next reference that the Lord gave him, the the second of the four references that the Lord gave him was James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice it does not say one thing about pray that God would resist the devil for you in any way whatsoever. No, it says submit yourself to God. Here's one way you can submit yourself to God, and that is by resisting the devil. Notice he didn't say he'll, if you resist the devil, he'll flee from Jesus. It said resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Brother Hagin said, I immediately thought 
back just a few moments before when I told that evil spirit, just panicking in desperation, told that evil spirit to stop what he was doing. And he fell down and whimpered like a little puppy. And he took off as soon as I told him to go. He said he just looked, laid there on the floor and shook. Now, Brother Hagin said this, and this was not part of the vision, but he said he found this uh, at a later time. He said there was something about this word flee that just, I, I knew there was more there than I would get. And so I would look up the definition, and I searched and searched and searched, and he said I finally came to one of these dictionaries, old-timey dictionaries is about a foot and a half thick, you know. He said uh, there were uh, almost a half a page about the explanations and examples of the word flee and stuff like that. He said, one of the definitions of the word flee that really, really witnessed to my heart. He said, the word flee means to run from as in terror. He said, I thought about that little thing taking off when I told him to go. I thought about that little thing whimpering when I told him to shut up. He said he was afraid of me. Now, Now, think about that. Here's Brother Hagin. Here's Jesus, the things in the middle, and the things afraid of Brother Hagin. Why? Because Brother Hagin's the one that has authority. See, the devil knows whose authority has been given to. The devil knows Jesus is not holding with authority, holding back and maintaining authority over the devil here on the earth. He's given that to the church. Because remember Jesus' prayer before he went to the cross? John chapter 17, he prayed that we would be one with him as he is one with the Father. That means what Jesus has, you have. No division of labor. Well, there is a division of labor, but no division of nature. Who the head is, the body is too. We don't distinguish between one and the other, do we? We don't look at somebody and say, well, look at their head and say, there's John. Look at the body and say, that's Jim. (laughs) Now the head and the body are all one. That's the example that the Holy Ghost gives about Jesus in the church. Jesus being the head of the church. When Jesus looks at you, he sees, uh, I'm sorry, when the devil looks at you, he sees Jesus. And the only way that he can stop you from being effective, as effective as Jesus, is to try to talk you out of who you really are. Which is the whole reason that Paul prayed over and over and over again for every church that he prayed for, that our eyes would be opened. That we'd find out who we really are. See, we look in the mirror and we see us. The Bible says look in the mirror and see the word. Well, what does that mean? That means when the Bible says that we've been made one with Christ, that he's the head and we're the body, when we look in the mirror, so to speak, we're supposed to see ourselves as Jesus, the extension of Jesus. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Now, here's the problem that some people have. They'll say, well, Pastor Mike, I told the devil to go and he didn't go. Folks, can we accept the fact and just establish this as the baseline? There's never any failure on God's end. I have no doubt whatsoever. I've done it myself, as a matter of fact. I have no doubt that people worldwide have attempted to resist the devil and the devil didn't go but the problem isn't that the word is not true the problem is we didn't really know how to resist the problem is we didn't work things on our end jesus said in referring to james chapter 4 that the devil will respond and run from you Third example, third, 
witness that the Lord gave? 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant. Sober, I, I always love the word sober. Every time it's used in the New Testament, we, the only time that I know of in, uh, in uh, modern language that we, or our Western language that we use the word sober is in relation to sobriety, meaning uh, not being drunk or something like that. But the word sober comes from the root word meaning not moved by emotion. Not moved by emotion. Sober means to think clearly no matter how you feel. Sober means to have the right point of view, the right perspective, no matter what is going on around you or how it's affecting your emotions one way or the other. And folks, I would submit to you that being sober-minded is the key to spiritual growth and strength. It's everything about faith. Faith is not moved. Real Bible faith is not moved by what it feels. It's moved by what it believes and knows to be true from the word. So what does that mean? That means you're going to have to think past your emotions so that you hold steady to that which is true instead of that how the, the things that you feel and the circumstances around you. That's what he's saying. Be sober, be vigilant. Vigilant means on guard. So think soberly. Think not moved by your emotions. Don't let your emotions rule you. Emotions are great things. I rejoice in those uh, with those of you that have them. But they're lousy guides. Be sober, be vigilant. Because, here's why you need to be sober and vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion. Please notice it does not say that he is a roaring lion. It says as a roaring lion. Well, what does he mean? God's saying Jesus, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit is saying through Peter that the devil is like a lion. Well, how is he like a lion? He makes a lot of noise. He doesn't say as a devouring lion. He doesn't say as a sharp tooth lion. He says as a roaring lion. A roar is noise. That's what the devil does. And that's one of the ways he tries to affect your emotions, which is why you have to think soberly to avoid the noise that the devil tries to create. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Not, notice it does not say the devil walks around picking people off and chewing them up. It says that he's on the lookout for who he may devour. It doesn't say who he can devour, who he may devour. Now let me ask you this. If the devil has the power that so much of the church world seems to think that he has. I'm convinced that most Christians think more of the devil than they do of God. They have more faith in the power of the devil than they have faith in the power of God. But if the devil is so powerful and if he's so mean, if he's so big and he's so bad and he's so capable to creating such havoc in people's lives, why does he have to look for who he may devour? The way that most people seem to think about the devil from what they say and the way a lot of preachers preach about the devil, it would just seem to be that once the devil sees you in his vision, line of sight, you're done. But notice that the devil is looking for permission. That's what may means, isn't it? I remember in grade school, I had a teacher that, that, man, I was one of these kids that had to go to the bathroom every 10 minutes. And, and teachers thought I was, you know, just trying to get out of class. But I had to go to the bathroom. And so I, there was one teacher I'd raise my hand and say, uh, Miss 
well, I won't tell your name. Miss so-and-so, can I go to the bathroom? And she'd, she'd look at me and she'd smile. She'd say, I don't know, can you? She's making jokes, and I'm going to go. So finally, the hard way, I learned. It's not, can I go to the bathroom? It's, may I go to the bathroom? As soon as I said, may I go? She said, yes, certainly, yes, you may. And I go running down the hall. Big difference in can and may. Can has to do with ability. May has to do with permission. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary... The devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for who will give him permission. That's why he has to look. So what are we to do about this? Since it's, I mean, if the devil was the one that made the decision about what happens in your life, he's not seeking permission on anything. He's just going to do whatever he's going to do. Tough luck for you. But what does the Bible say for us to do about this adversary that's looking for permission to destroy and devour people notice the next verse verse 9 whom meaning here's what you do about the devil resist steadfast in the faith now if the devil had the power to eat you up whenever he wanted to what good is resisting him in the faith going to do none whatsoever the truth is you're the one that decides not him and that's exactly what the experience Brother Hagin had with the Lord when the Lord said, if you hadn't done something about that evil spirit, I couldn't have. He was thinking, why did the Lord allow this? Doesn't Jesus know the situation I'm in? Doesn't he know I need to hear what he's saying? Why is he letting this happen? We, so many times Christians have gotten to the place where they don't accuse God of doing it, but just kind of lay it off on him like, well, he let it happen. When in reality, the reason so many things happen in our lives is because we let it happen. Because we're the one that's been given authority over it, not Jesus. Are you still out there? Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. In other words, he's saying because we all deal with the same trouble, the same issues, the same difficulties in life. So resist them in the faith. Steadfast, uh, Amplified says steadfast in your faith. Whom resist steadfast in the faith. I like that. Now, why do we have to be steadfast in the faith? Because a lot of times when you uh, exercise authority over the devil, it looks like he doesn't go. See, faith deals with things that aren't seen, not things that are seen. Jesus did not say, behold, I give you authority over the devil and you can run him around any way you want to in life. He didn't say that. He didn't say, behold, I give you authority over the devil, and you can be the puppet master with the devil on a string. Just flop him around anyhow you want to. He didn't say that. But that seems to be what some people think that authority must be, and if it's not like that, it's not working. But notice the, uh, the exercise of faith in connection with the exercise of authority. That means there are some things you're going to have to stand your ground on where it looks like the devil doesn't go, but he has to. I remember another situation that Brother Hagin tells about, or used to tell about, where um, there was a, uh, somebody that came up to him in a prayer line to receive their healing. And, uh, and Brother Hagin recognized, he, because of the way that the Lord used him, he recognized there's a presence of an evil spirit here. And at that point in time, there was, uh, well, there was a manifestation in his hands. He said he could feel the healing 
anointing jumped from hand to hand. And the Lord told him whenever that would happen, that was the presence of an evil spirit. So he's going to have to deal with the spirit. So he laid hands on this guy and, uh, and told this uh, evil spirit to go. And nothing happened. Brother Hagin backed up. And normally he got you know, instant results on this. He backed up. And the guy was just as bound up as he was before. When I say bound up, he was literally crippled up. And, uh, and so Brother Hagin told him, he said, well, see if you can move your legs. The guy tried. There was nothing, nothing, no change. Brother Hagin put his hands back on him, you know, and felt the same thing again. Commanded that evil spirit to tear loose of him. Let him go. Backed up and said, now see if you can move. The guy couldn't move. He did this three times and finally let the guy go. And he's walking away. And Brother Hagin's going on to lay hands on somebody else. And he's, and he's struggling with this thing, saying, Lord, I don't understand. You said that when I laid hands on somebody and I felt that healing anointing go from one hand to the other, that that was the presence of an evil spirit. You said that they would go. I told him to go and he didn't go. He said, all of a sudden, the Lord appeared. He turned back around and the Lord was standing where he was before. And Jesus said, I told you that when you laid hands on somebody, that healing anointing jumped from hand to hand, that that evil spirit would have to go when you commanded him to go. And, and Brother Hagin answered back and said, yeah, but Jesus, Lord... I did that, and he didn't go. And he said, fire, looked like fire came out of Jesus' eyes. And Jesus stomped his foot and said, I said he would, and disappeared. Well, what do you do with that? (laughs) Brother Higgins stood there for a second. He said, it so took me by surprise. It so shocked me. He said, I stood there for a second, and he said, all of a sudden, I saw it. Just quick as a flash, I saw it. He said the guy wasn't even back down. To, he's shuffling his feet down to uh, the back to his seat. Didn't even get all the way down the aisle. He stopped him and said, hey, 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 brother, you, you, come on back up here. Brother Higgins said, I'm waiting for him. Took him a long time to get there. Seemed like forever. I'm waiting for him. He said, as soon as he got back down there, he said, I reached over and grabbed a hold of his head, one, one hand on one side of his head, the other hand on the other side of his head. He said, I felt that thing go back and forth. And he said, you foul spirit. I told you to go in Jesus' name. Now go now. He said, here was the difference. He said, he backed up and instead of saying, see if you can move, he said, bend down and touch your toes. You see the difference? Real small difference. One is, hey, let's see if this is working. The other is, we believe it works, so do something. Whom resists steadfast in your faith? The guy bent over and touched his toes and was free. Brother Hagin said, boy, we had a meeting then. Everybody in town knew that guy. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, doesn't say he is one, says he sounds like one, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom? Here's what you do about it because that's the devil's operation. Whom resist steadfast in your faith. Finally, the last example of the fourth witness is over in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, Jesus was a witness, the first witness. James was the second witness. Peter was the third witness. Now, Paul's the fourth witness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. Neither give place to the devil. Now, folks, if the devil can take place whenever he wants to, no matter what you do, why would the Bible tell you not to give him any place? How could the Bible tell you not to give him any place unless you had the authority to decide whether he has any place in you or not? 
neither, here's the instruction by the Holy Ghost through the Apostle Paul, neither give place to the devil. Neither give place to the devil. Turn with me to, um, well, just turn with me over a page or two to Colossians chapter 1. We see now what this means, the verse of Scripture we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks over in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if by one man, since by one man's offense, death reigned by one, spiritual death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace, the finished work of Jesus, which would include authority, by the way, and the gift of righteousness shall reign as kings in this life. Shall reign as kings in this life. Shall reign as kings in this life. Notice Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. This is speaking of Jesus or God through the work of Jesus. Who has delivered us from the power of darkness. From the power of darkness. Let me read this to you from another translation. Uh, let me get it here real quick. From the Amplified it says this. The Father has delivered and drawn us to himself. Out of the control and the dominion of darkness. Out of the control and the dominion of darkness. And has transferred us into the kingdom of, his, of the son of his love. The Jewish Bible says he has rescued us from the domain of darkness. This word, by the way, this word uh, uh, power of, uh, of darkness in verse 13, this word power is the word authority. Who has delivered us from the authority of darkness and translated. To translate means to take somebody out of one place and place, put them into another place. Philip was translated from one place to the next place. He was translated from talking to the Ethiopian eunuch there and baptizing him in a pool of water. And he found himself in a nearby city next. He was translated from one place to the next. Taken out of one condition, placed into another condition. The condition that God took you out of was under the bondage of uh, spiritual death. And he translated you into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, what is the kingdom of his dear son? Well, it includes authority over the devil. Look with me over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Notice verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Another translation says, well, let me get this from some uh, other translations and show you. Romans six fourteen. One translation says, for sin shall not any longer exert dominion over you, since you now... Since now you are not under the law as slaves, but under grace as subjects of God's favor and mercy. The Jewish Bible again says, for sin will not have authority over you because you are not under legalism, but under grace. In other words, it's saying sin no longer because of the work of Jesus, because you've made him the Lord of your life. Sin no longer has dominion over you for you are not under the law, but under grace. Well, if, you, if sin doesn't have dominion, and by the way, not every time, but most of the time when the Bible speaks of sin singular, it's talking about either the sin of Adam or sin, uh, the consequence of Adam's sin, which is spiritual death. This is literally talking about spiritual death. It's not just talking about behavior. Thank God we, we don't, aren't subject to the behavior of sin. But it goes even further than that. It's saying spiritual death no longer has dominion over you. And by the way, you couldn't control your behavior unless you were free from spiritual death. Because dead people sin. 
Spiritually dead people sin. That's the reason why people sin. The problem is not that they sin. The problem is not that mankind is sinners. The problem is that mankind is spiritually dead. And the only thing that can change that is the life of Jesus. Receiving the life of Jesus as a substitute. So here where it says for sin shall no longer have dominion over you. It literally means you're no longer under the authority of spiritual death. Now what does that mean? Well that means everything that's a product of spiritual death. Everything that came on the earth as a result of Adam's sin. Poverty. Sickness. Depression. Anxiety. Any other thing that you can mention. All those are a part of spiritual death. You're no longer under the authority of any of those things. That means if you resist the devil in the area of sickness, he'll flee from you. If you resist the devil in the area of of poverty or lack, he'll flee from you. If you resist the devil in the area of anxiety, he has to flee. That means you can resist him in faith. He's looking to devour you through poverty, through sickness, through anxiety and depression and so forth. But if you resist him, if you're sober-minded, if you realize the truth of the word rather than just look at how you feel, knowing that he tries to make his threats and make a lot of noise about what he can do and what he's going to do and how he's going to take your life and whatever else he's threatening you with, if you know that those are idle threats, as long as you stand steadfast in your faith, he can't devour you. And any of those things you look to God to do for you, you're wasting your time. Because God doesn't have the authority over those things. God doesn't have the authority for you to prosper. You do. God doesn't have the authority for you to walk in health. You do. Jesus paid the price. That was part of God's original plan. But whether or not you accept it, whether or not you take advantage of it, whether or not you uh, appropriate it in your life, that has to do with your authority, not his. That's how... Receiving the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness causes you to reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, you may have to stand your ground. You may not get instant results. You may have to stand your ground and the devil may tell you he's there and not backing up and he's moving forward and all this other kind of stuff. I know when we were fighting some of the battles we had on on the building and the the lawsuits and all some of the other stuff that was going on. I know that I was dealing with it day after day after day and it looked like the devil was a full speed ahead against us. I'd pray, I'd have a wonderful time of prayer, I'd get myself built up in faith, come to the office and there'd be another terrible report or terrible news or something like that waiting for me. I got to where I thought, well, if I don't just come to the office, maybe that'll help. But it didn't. Still waiting for me whenever I got there again. And over and over again, I'd tell the devil, Satan, take your hands off our finances. You have no authority here. You have nothing to do with this. We belong to God. We're doing the plan and the purpose of God. We're accomplishing God's will for our church. And the devil kept moving full speed ahead, full speed ahead. And every time something else would come, the devil would laugh at me and he'd say, Yeah, you thought you claimed authority. You thought you got rid of this, didn't you? And I'd think, Well, yeah, I kind of did. That's the way I felt. But I stood up and said, no, Mr. Devil, the Bible says if I resist you, you have to flee. So you're gone and you just don't know it yet. Took a while. Took a while. But you know what happens, folks? A lot of times the devil's had to turn loose of things and some things just take time to grow. It's kind of like planting a garden. What if you planted a garden and you found you had gophers in your garden? Well, you've got two things going on. You've got the the hindrance that the gophers are causing to the growth of whatever you planted in your garden. But then you've got the problem of the gophers themselves. 
if you kill the gophers, you still got to wait for the garden to grow. But it doesn't mean you still have gophers. Kill your gophers. I never thought about that before. I like this. That's what resisting the devil is. It's killing your gophers. He has to go. He has to go. Doesn't mean everything's going to change overnight. But a lot of times when the devil is screaming at you, a lot of times the devil's telling you what he's going to do, his hands are off of it already because you've exercised your authority. He just hopes you don't know it. He just hopes that you'll back up and say, well, Lord, I thought it was working, but I guess it's not. Please do something. You just gave him permission to devour you. You just lost your ground. Whatever you were standing steadfast in your faith, you just lost that ground. Now you've got to start all over again. He takes back hold. Are you out there? No wonder Jesus said to the disciples, the 70, Behold, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. You think we have less than the 70 had? Those were unsaved men, folks. No, we've got more. We've got more. Resist the devil and he shall flee from you. He'll run from you as in terror. Praise the Lord. Well, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. Satan, we command you to take your hands off of our finances. We command you to take your hand off of our bodies. We command you to take your hand off of our minds. We refuse to give you any place because the word of God tells us so. We declare... That we're free from sickness. We're free from anxiety. We're free from depression. We're free from worry. We declare that in the name of Jesus. We are free from financial hardship and debt. Everything we put our hand to prospers. Our bodies are supernaturally amending. The word of God is raising us up. Is working in us. To effect a healing and a cure in us. From the top of our head to the soles of our feet. We thank you, Father, that Satan's hands are off of our bodies and our finances and our situations, our lives. We refuse to give him any place. We refuse to let him attach himself to us any longer. We stand upon your word, Father, and we thank you for bringing it to pass. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen.